Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, energized life that totally rocks. You're listening to Straight Talking Natural Health, a no BS podcast for busy women who want to ditch the fatigue, find balance and feel great with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Today's guest has intentionally taken the slow approach to achieving her goals in the form of slow food and slow farming. She's passionate about localized food, regenerative farming practices, intentional growing, and operates a farm rich in its diversity of produce. She grows apples, pears, berries, nuts, stone fruit, quince, olives, pomegranates, I'm getting hungry already, currants, figs, (laughs) herbs, flowers, and vegetables. Her background in tourism shines through in her business model because you can visit her property and pick your own fruit. So cool. She also operates a fruit tree and perennial plant nursery, runs regular feasts, gatherings, workshops, school programs, farm tours to educate us about the food that we eat and the skills needed to grow it. In other words, getting us back in touch with where our food comes from. If that's not enough, <clears throat> type A much. She's also <laughs> a sure she haven't finished. <laughs> She's also a keynote speaker, a podcaster, a writer, and she has just finished her first book, Future Steading, Live Like Tomorrow Matters. I wish I lived closer because I've heard her apples are to die for. Please welcome to the show the amazing Jade Miles. <laughs> Thanks, Jules. Actually, that makes me sound tired. (laughs) Makes me feel tired. (laughs) How are your adrenals? (laughs) Yeah, very closely monitored. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things that when you put the whole thing together, you're like, damn. (laughs) Do I do that? Where do I fit the kids in? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's some kids in there somewhere and a husband. Mm, That's right. So tell me, how how did you come to be so passionate about growing food the slow way like were you born into this or was this an acquired thing no I was lucky to have been born into it I had um some very ideological parents who lived very very intentionally and very simply and it may well have been that a lot of that was driven not just through ideology but through necessity we didn't have a lot of money and um my dad was a very early adopter of permaculture principles and it was sort of, I guess, at the beginning of Bill Mollison's kind of launch into the world with his philosophical concepts. And uh, my dad, who's fairly anti-authoritarian, adopted quite a lot of those uh, through intuition really. And my mum, who is actually a nurse, she she earned the money, she um, pretty well had a set of skills that enabled all of the food that we ate to be grown and then preserved on our property. So really I was born into it and I've never really known any other way. But, of course, you do then go through periods in your life where, you know, you don't want to be any of that or um, it's just not practical to be any of that when you're at university or when you're house-sitting or house-sharing during your early 20s. But actually I was 21 when I moved to the bush and I knew that I needed to move back to the country. So I grew up in the country, moved to the city for my high schooling and and tertiary years and then moved up here. So we were only 21 and I have never had a time where I haven't had a veggie garden, even if it was in pots on my bench of a rental. Uh, It's pretty pretty fundamental to me and (laughs) that list that you gave, it does actually sound a bit exhausting and it's kind of not like 
that. It's pretty full on, but it's it's not all of those things all of the time, or that wouldn't be possible. But um, gardening for me and growing my own food is the single most powerful way for me to feel really grounded and feel really settled and and just to feel calm. So it's a bit of a a double edged gift really it doesn't just give me food but it also gives me daily meditation and creative outlet and you know annual seasonal rhythms and a chance to observe gently and slowly so it's been a a a lifelong love affair really yeah right for the city folk out there what are the basic principles of permaculture there are three basic overarching ethics and then a whole series of underpinning principles that sit under that. But it's essentially earth care, people care, fair share. Um, and so we at Black Barn Farm don't really consider ourselves to be permaculture purists. But I guess the biggest thing with with permaculture is that it's actually not a doing thing it's a thinking thing it's a really broad framework that can be applied to any single thing that you do through the decisions that you make and the actions that you take and so I think for a really long time people misunderstood permaculture as being a a practice of gardening or a particular way of, of gardening or growing food and of course the green leaf is really powerful it's it's a really potent and necessary thing in our world and so to grow food and to know where your food comes from contributes to all sorts of issues in a really positive way um and so that's really critical but you know, there's a whole series of principles like slow and simple solutions, for example, which really encourages you to think about not just putting your hand in your pocket and buying a quick and effective solution, but actually considering what other slower, simple solutions might be applicable to the problem at hand. Um, And sometimes, you know, observe and interact is another one of those. And observing is something that we don't often give ourselves the luxury of doing because it feels you know, it feels a bit opulent and sometimes it feels slow and it feels like it doesn't have a linear path. It feels a bit distracted. And so the value that comes from observing is tenfold and it can actually lead you to a solution that you may not have otherwise come up with if you hadn't have given yourself the time to sit for a little while. So I guess, um, you know, we're based in the country and we have space around us and we grow most of our own food and what we don't grow we trade or we access from the growers that we do know and that that grow ethically but not everybody is in a position to do that but it doesn't mean that you can't do something and I guess that's where future setting came from for us it harks back to the permaculture way of life but um, sometimes permaculture can be dogged by being a little bit dogmatic it's actually not but it it is misconstrued to be that whereas future standing is about living like tomorrow matters which means that all of those little tiny simple things that we do in everyday life can contribute to a richer stronger more sustainable existence for us and our future generations and it might be a pot of mint on your kitchen bench it might be joining your local food co-op and actively contributing to it you know it might be Um, you know, creating for the sake of creating without any sense of intention but actually just finding peace and uh, creativity in that process. You know, it it might be thinking about slower solutions for your health that are more more, um, internal rather than reactionary and topical. So, 
it can be really broad, but anyone can do it and it doesn't cost anything. It, it gives you the ability to feel less overwhelmed with the state of the world by just doing slow and simple things every single day. That's really cool because, like, when you when you meet people who are really into permaculture, you're often meeting people who are, like, really, really, really into their gardens. And I'd never considered that it's a whole philosophy in the same way that, like, yoga isn't just the poses like yes. the asanas or the poses are just like one little bit of yoga and we've I've had Shara Carruthers on my show in the past and she talks about that a lot like the poses are just one small part of the whole yoga philosophy and mm. the way of life and this sounds like the same thing like everyone kind of goes oh it's all about like sustainable veggie gardening but mm-hmm. this this is so much bigger than that. Yes, it's really not. It's so much bigger. It's really a a framework to make decisions by and those decisions all contribute to an existence that uh, has the ability to be permanent, which is what perma, as in permanent culture, really means. It's to create a permanent culture that has the ability to live on this earth in a way that is in harmony and that is regenerative in its intention rather than Um, not even sustainable, which isn't enough because we've done too much damage. You know, it's important that we start to think regeneratively and permaculture has the ability to do that because its intention is to create a permanent culture. Yeah, I love that sustainable versus regenerative too because it just really changes the way that you look at our current situation. Yeah. Yeah, well, we've reached peak lots of things. And so the the reality is that we can't actually continue to live just like we are, which is what to sustain means. It means to maintain status quo. We actually we actually need to enhance and improve the damage that we've done and, and find ways to live more harmoniously with the world around us because she's really the foundation that, that sets the tone for everything. The soil under our feet and the air that we breathe and the water that we drink is pretty critical. And without it, we we can't keep going. No. So talk to me about our current food system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know we could talk about this for hours yeah, well. as one topic, <laughs> but what is it about our current food system that is so broken right now? Well, I guess our current food system is um, based on the industrial monoculture commodity long supply chain dynamic. And so within that very complicated jargon field sentence there's a whole lot of things that essentially provide fragility and uh, weakness and not least of all is the fact that because it's so long and because it comes out of monocultures we are disconnected from the reality of food production and um the complexity of actually producing your own food so as long as we don't understand and celebrate the food that we are growing and don't have a, a really deep primal connection to where the food has come from, we actually don't value it. And when we don't value it, we then happily waste it. We then have really high expectations of the cost of it. So we want it to be inexpensive. Um, we want it to be convenient. So we want what we want when we want it. And we start to disconnect from the fact that food is in fact seasonal and it's not actually available year round. And it's actually within that, it's more nutritionally robust when it's been picked and eaten within a much shorter time frame. And look, the industrial system for all its vagaries is in fact incredible in that it's had the ability to feed a a rapidly growing population globally 
But with that comes, you know, enhanced disease problems, um, eroded soil health, eroded human health, eroded and completely gutted in some cases uh, regional communities. And within Australia, we see that everywhere. Our inability to really truly um, have food sovereignty is actually an incredible weakness. And we saw that when COVID happened and people's expectation of the food being on the shelves were suddenly faced with the reality that we have a just-in-time approach in Australia where anything that's on the shelves is only there for three days. We only have three days' worth of food on our supermarket shelves and that's a logistics management issue and we can't make that any other way. And that actually is amazing that we have the ability to feed however many million of us there are with just three days' worth of fat in our system. So that assumes that there is never going to be a disaster or a problem that we face. But the reality is in the uncertain times that we're moving into that that realities do uh, disasters do happen like fires where people are locked off from their their transported food or floods where they're locked off from transported food or covid where we just can't get food on the shelves because people rush to get more than they would otherwise put in their pantries so what it does is it really shows you that we have this idea that going to the supermarket every day is a really viable thing to do and in fact it's not. It's not something we've ever done as far as human history is concerned. We have always, always known where our food has come from. We've known how to grow it. We've known how complicated it can be and what problems we can face when we grow it. And then we know what to do with it. So we have a really high level of food literacy. And with that comes food sovereignty because we we know how to take something from a seed state right through to a plated state and all of the steps in between and we are in control of that. But right now with the industrial food system the way it is, we are not in control of that because we rely wholly and solely on making sure that there's food in the supermarket and we're not in control of that at all. Where does it come from? How was it grown? What was the name of the farmer that grew it? Do I have a relationship with him? Will I stick by him or her if, you know, she can only produce hail-damaged fruit this year or if the grasshoppers are particularly bad so that there's a lower yield or whatever it might be. We're so disconnected from the reality of where the food comes from that we don't actually have any capacity to ebb and flow with the production of food. We just expect it to be there and we expect it to be low cost. And that disconnects us completely from the most the most vital thing that we have, which is the food that we eat. Yeah, and then why did people go out and panic buy toilet paper instead of stockpiling healthy food on? <laughs> I was out stocking up my freezer with meat and, and, you know, stocking my pantry with, like, brown rice and veggies and, mm-hmm. you know, but everyone else is buying toilet paper. I was like... <laughs> people are happy to go hungry. They just don't want to have to wipe their bum. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um If we don't change anything in this generation, Mm. what are the consequences for the next generation and beyond? Well, I think we've seen those largely start to play out already. And disconnection from food is a really difficult thing to arrest because if we don't love it, I mean really love it and really celebrate it and celebrate the small things, then um, it again just becomes a commodity product that we're happy to waste and we we lose the depth of culture. And food has always been at the centre of 
humanity and our culture has wrapped around food pretty strongly, which also means that you can, you wrap yourself around seasonal existence. But <clears throat> we run lots and lots of schools programs and I always say to kids, you know, where do you get your food from? And and I can pretty well pick the type of school and the location of the school based on the answers that I get. And sadly, the more city-based kids have less connection to their food. They just don't have those cousins or uncles or grandparents in the country anymore because people just aren't in the country anymore. And if they are, they're there as lifestylers. They're not there as food producers. Um, and if that's the case, when I then say, okay, so if you get them from the supermarket, when do apples come into season? Nine times out of ten, kids have got no idea that apples actually come in a season and that they're stored for up to 12 months in in great big kind of gas chambers to keep them looking good. Um, you know, and you start to you start to take the most primal thing that we do, which is eat and feed ourselves through food and medicate ourselves through food and give ourselves vitality through food and celebrate through food, you start to numb and dull all of that. And it starts to erode not only our culture, but our health and our, our regional spirit and our capacity to you know, support all of those fair and equitably across our country. So we have this dominance already in our cities. <clears throat> And this this inequality uh, of those that are in the cities getting more access to more things, and it continues to erode in the country because we just don't have vibrant food systems where those that are actually producing the food get paid a fair and equitable amount to enable them to actually look after the soil, which is the fundamental basis for everything that we're standing on. You know, and so as long as we continue to erode our understanding and our our celebration of food we continue to erode our opportunity to to truly nurture the things that um are giving us the food which is the soil and the farmers that's insane because if you look at like i i've you know i've only been living in byron for almost 10 years before that i was like the most city of all the city people ever in a city (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i am that lifestyler sorry everyone um but it's insane because we've got this rise in our culture in australia of this real foodie culture and you know i was living in melbourne which was like the foodie capital and i believe still is you know sorry sydney people you'll never catch up (laughs) So like, I lived in this amazing foodie culture and I've, I've watched it evolve over the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years and especially in the last 10 years, it's all about slow cooking and like deep, deeply rooted culture and, and you, you see they, they put these people on MasterChef who've got these recipes that are deeply steeped in their family traditions and blah, blah, blah. it's all slow food, right, mm. yet we're disconnected from how that food gets to the fancy restaurant or how the food gets to our fancy deli. And we, in the city, we're still not involved in the growing or the production of it. We just want really good quality brought to us. And we don't want to pay a lot for it. And we're not that willing to accept that they might be twice as much this year because that particular region was flooded or was hailed or was bushfired. And so the the reality is that we we kind of it's a bit like our waste really. You put it in the rubbish bin and someone takes it away and it's all very neat and tidy and we don't actually ever have to face the reality of it. Whereas our food's a bit the same. We want a steak, so we get a steak, but it doesn't occur to us that 
with that state comes a whole lot of other product that uh, in in most cases isn't being utilised because that's actually not where demand sits right now. So things like whole beast eating and, you know, carrots are a really good example. We use um, the carrot tops in place of nearly all of our greens at some point in time if we don't have other greens. And people are always amazed, one, that you can eat carrot tops and, two, that they've got the ability to be used in exactly the same way as lots of other greens. And so, you know, people just don't have an understanding that you can use things um, across your year. We've got some beautiful woofers living with us at the moment which are willing workers on organic farms. They are farm volunteers. And... Um, they cooked dinner and they were marching into town to go to the supermarket yesterday. And she said, actually, you don't do that, do you? I said, no, we never do that. We use what we've got because our veggie garden is laden all of the year. Uh, and it might be that every single day of these next three months, we will need to eat kale and we will need to eat potatoes. But that's because that's what we've got. We use what we've got always. We eat seasonally and we are deeply committed to seasonal eating because it saves us a trip into town. It means we don't use petrol. It means we don't rely on uh, refrigerated trucks to get food into a, a central location. It means that we generally don't generate any plastic waste because <clears throat> we haven't actually required any packaging. And what we've done is shorten the supply chain and sacrificed variety in some ways, but it has made us more creative because we take what we've got and we do as much as we possibly can with that so that we don't get bored of it because the reality is we probably will be eating potatoes every meal for the next three or four months because I didn't have any pumpkins this year because they just didn't take whereas my potatoes went crazy so you know you kind of use what you've got and the reality is that most people don't live like that they follow a master chef recipe or they follow a you know a gourmet magazine recipe and they want what they want when they want it and they don't necessarily have the skills or the inclination to actually look at a whole beast or a whole piece of food and find ways to use every element of it or to forage for the gaps or we went foraging yesterday for mushrooms and um, so now of course we have buckets and buckets of mushrooms so the next week will all be about eating mushrooms and whatever is left over will be dehydrated for winter but that is just not how people operate because they want what they want when they want it at the price they're willing to pay so it's a really different paradigm of existence and it also requires you to have the headspace to not only upskill but then commit to delivering on some of those actions yeah and I think that whole that whole what we want when we want and and willing to pay the price for it it's like the foodie culture means that we understand the value of good produce and fresh produce, which is amazing. Like that's one good thing that's come out of, of that. But where I think that foodie culture has arisen out of wanting things to taste amazing, not necessarily wanting to eat for the sake of our own health or for the sake of the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that's that. It's a good start. It's a good start. Yeah. Understand better produce now. Well, I think um, that's why future steading has kind of popped out because maybe this year all you can manage is learning three or four different mushrooms and learning some different spots as to where they are or maybe some, you know, roadside apples or, you know, how to use dandelion roots. You know, it might be that this year you're going to focus on foraging and so you're going to start to fill some of your 
food literacy gaps with just that one thing. And then next year you might start to think about how you um, eat more seasonally. And so you might do a bit of research to understand what is in season when because the supermarkets, uh, they don't teach you any of that. There's a little bit of marketing, like special marketing that goes on. But, you know, the spring hunger gap is something that people don't necessarily know that much about and it's a very real thing. So maybe you're going to try and adapt to eat more seasonally in another year. And then, you know, the following year you might um, consider where the food comes from. So you might decide to transfer all of the food that you, if you can't grow it yourself because you're in an apartment or on a without a balcony or whatever, you might decide to commit to a community-supported agriculture box scheme where you get your veggies and your meat and your dairy delivered weekly or monthly or however often. And so it's about really understanding that people are on a transitional journey. People have more in common than not. And just because you're not living in a way that kind of reiterates that tomorrow matters doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that you haven't got to a place where you're seeking that kind of existence. And it depends on what you believe really, but I think ultimately we're all going to have to get back to a place where we contribute a little bit more to the community around us and the state of global health. And um, all of those little tiny things are just subtle shifts towards that bigger picture. So it's not just about doing what you want when you want it for you, but really considering how other people are impacted by the decisions that you make. Is this system that you would like to see us to head towards, is this scalable in a population that's growing at the rate that our population is growing? Because it's, you know, it's all well and good to see these pockets of, of communities like, like where you are. And look, like Byron Bay, where I live, is a food bowl. And when, when COVID happened, we stopped going to the supermarket. We just drove around to farms and picked up seasonal produce. So, like, there are pockets. Like, there's your pocket, there's our pocket, there's, there's heaps. But is this, is this way of living scalable when the population is growing so much like if you listen to a lot of agricultural scientists they were and the government they will tell us that we need to find more efficient ways of making like shit tons of food and growing it indoors under lights and we need to feed the population so the vast majority of the world not the western world but the um the developing world is already existing like this and they always have and so the fact that we're more urbanised is what makes us more reliant on an industrial system. But the fact that we're more urbanised is because we are pushing towards paradigms of endless growth, economic growth, um, you know, financial growth, physical growth. We actually don't need to be on an endless growth paradigm and, in fact, that's to our detriment. Have you, have you, um, have you read Uno's Garden? No. Oh, it's a beautiful... Book. It's it's a book about um, finding a beautiful place in the natural world and then wanting to share it. So putting some tiny little cottages in there, and a few people come and visit it, and then lots of people hear about it and think it's amazing. And so they put a few more houses in there, and then more people hear about it and want a tree change and and want to exist like that. So they put some sky rises in there, and then you know the inevitable happens that you end up with. Um, back-to-back walls of sky-rise buildings and there's no trees anymore. And so all of the things that used to live in these beautiful part, this beautiful pat- patch no longer exist. And um, 
it's sort of an example of what's happened in our real world. We kind of find these special things and then promptly destroy it because we think we need to grow grow it and we think we all need to have a part of it. And, look, I get asked this all the time, is this can we feed the world? And it's I'm not an academic and so there are plenty of strong academic responses to this that um, reassure me that we absolutely can. The vast majority of the world is already living like this. It's just us in the Western world where we're committed to fast cars and big houses and biggering and biggering and biggering endlessly that we think we can't and we think we need to maintain this ability to go to the the shops and get whatever we want, whenever we want it. Um, And if we can't get it from the shops, we'll get it online. So at all costs, we will never go without because we feel entitled to that. But the reality is um, that's actually not not ever, ever going to sustain itself. So Future Steading has got seven key principles and all of them are about what's between your ears, you know, the way in which you see the world and the way in which you think. And all of them are achievable with or without financial stability behind you because they're about finding simple rich things that empower you without having to have a lot. So finding a place of enough, I talk about this with my co-host on my Future Steading podcast all the time, what is your enough? Um, And obviously it's different for everybody, but, you know, there is a baseline of enough and then there is so much more than enough that it's actually opulence and unnecessary opulence. So the seven principles that future steading is kind of guided by is um, to connect with Mother Nature first and foremost because until you reconnected, we're, we're incredibly disconnected at the moment, but until you reconnected to the seasonal cycles, the natural rhythm of the, the weather systems, the natural rhythm of um, growing and production potential, the the way in which we dress, you know, and just being a bit more practical about it and turning air conditioners off and actually going outside and putting our feet on the ground and smelling earth when it's got rain on it and looking up into trees from underneath and staring at the sky and realising how humbled we should be and how small we are in the greater scheme of things, we continue to operate as though we are not of the earth but controlling of her and that's never ever going to fly we, we just could never be that we think we can but we can't we are well and truly just a tiny part of her um to celebrate simple and simple's tricky because you know i think i live a paired back simple life and then i hear you give that introduction <laughs> there's a lot of moving parts in there but i don't mean no moving parts because that's that's hum- human human inclination is to is to fill it with lots of different interesting things but I mean celebrate the really little things so you know there isn't a single day that goes past where I don't sit in the middle of my garden and have a really good look around and and try and identify the birds that I can see actively listen to all of the insects that I can hear observe the state uh, or the timing of the bud burst and where it's up to um you know, for food, for me, for example, for my family, I walk out onto my my back deck and I look at my veggie garden and I work out what food for the next 24 hours looks like for us. And that's 
basically what I'm staring at because it's grown in my own backyard. So it's really, really reveling in that as being some of the most amazing gifts that you could be given and not needing any more than that and letting that be your enough. It's building ritual, so that's another um, of the seven philosophies, to build ritual, and that might be as simple as having a three o'clock cup of tea or watching the sun come up every morning on your own while you kind of take your day in and be grateful for it and, um, you know, plan what your day looks like. But then it equally might be kind of combining another one of the, the philosophies, which is to create your clans, we bring all of our people together once or twice every single year. We do it more often, but we always do it um, at these times for different gatherings that are quite ritualistic. We do one called a wassail, which is in the middle of winter on the solstice, and we um, we all dress up and we bang sticks and we have fire torches and we light a great big bonfire and we chant and we drink cider and we do Oh my god, bonfire. I'm so in. All right, I'm on my way. I'm getting in the car. <laughs> it's bloody freezing, but the kids run around and oh we feast. There's nothing like the feasts of our sales because everybody brings food that they've prepared out of their own gardens or off their own properties. And you know, that is just the most amazing ritual and we've been doing that for years and years and, um, you know, I wouldn't give that up for quids. So it doesn't have to be as big as that, but you could do a little version of that in your own backyard in, in the city. You know, that could be that you go to a local park and you take a fire pit and you roast some chestnuts and you do sausages and you put a black cape on and you make up little kind of quirky chants and, you know, it could be as simple as as that or it could just be acknowledging that there are equinoxes and solstices at different times of the year and doing something for them with a group of friends um loving local and i don't mean that you know i feel like every other local council in australia puts these love local campaigns <laughs> together yep. I, I mean truly genuinely get behind your local things if you've got local events on that some volunteer group has, has pulled together go to it because they can only continue if you continue to, to attend them. Um, if you join your local food co-op, volunteer at it, even if it's only once a month for two hours, but most importantly, shop at it. Rebuild your habits and your shopping expectations around what that local community food group is putting together for you. Send your kids to the local high school. Don't send them off to school to the trendy cool school. Send them to the local high school and get on the board, get behind it. Really, truly commit to your local backyard because if you make your local backyard the most vibrant beating heart that you can make it and everybody else is doing the same thing then we don't have this inequality in the same way we stop having pockets of you know abundance and other pockets of poverty we actually start to really build what's in our own backyard um Creating your clans I've talked about and that's really actively finding your people because until you feel like you really belong, it's really hard to be your strongest and best self and I'm aware that this one requires um, a bit of space in your world and not everybody has that space because they're too busy working nine to five but finding your people is really important and finding people that think big but act local. So I always say think global, act local and that means that you're always looking outwards but um, acting inwards and I think that's really a, a big part of it. And then saluting the seasons. Embrace the fact that, and I break my world down into seven seasons, which starts with the awakening, um, 
which is about early, early spring. And then it moves into a live where all of the leaves are tumbling out of the trees and things just can't grow fast enough and there is fluoro green as they come. Then high heat, which is a little bit slower, and high heat um, is where you kind of top and tail your activities of in the day and then during the middle of the day you might bunker down inside a bit more. Then you move into harvest where the food is just coming thick and fast out of, out of the patch and you're needing to find ways to preserve that for winter or to be a bit more creative with the abundance that you've got. Then the turning, and the turning's a bit of an indicator that it's time to turn inwards and start to, to, to slow a little, slow not only your social activities and your growing activities, but just slow for you. And then that really deep nurturing, nourishing time of deep chill right in the guts of winter. Um, and it's about finding all of the rituals and activities and observations that you take across those seasons, the way you change your clothing, the way you change your daily habits, the way you change the food that you eat, the way you feel within yourself, the way you interact with friends. Like they all change depending on the season that you're in. So find ways to really salute that. Yeah. It's it's interesting because like uh, my family, as, as a lot of people uh, in Australia, like I've got, uh, relatives from the UK so my ancestry is back in the UK mm-hmm. and what you just e- described to me about the seasons and the rituals around the seasons and the activities it's very harks back to a very sort of pagan system oh. yeah yeah it does it does and for those of us that have Caucasian backgrounds that's not entirely unfamiliar we may not necessarily know the exact stories but you know it, it sits deep within us we do have familial um, history and memory and we just need to tap into that because it's where the magic sits you stop longing for stuff because you've got all these other beautiful experiences happening in your life mm. so it's a real it, it's it, a lot of people are getting into sort of minimalism and that minimalist approach but it, it, it is more about stuff mm. and and this is about living and and relationships more yeah, it's about the people and it's about just giving depth of culture Um, because we do live a fairly shallow culture now where we hear host celebrities and we, um, you know, we cook according to what we see being cooked on television and, (laughs) you know, we've sort of disconnected ourselves from those much deeper knowledge bases that have always been the difference between survival or thriving and surviving. So, um, I think there is a desire. I don't think it's just a small group of people around me. I think there's definitely a desire that people have to reconnect with a lot of this stuff. Um, And I I, I guess, you know, you can take it to the extreme where it does start to feel dogmatic or you can keep it really light and really joyful and um, just let people observe what you're doing and take the little pieces that they feel comfortable interacting or 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 adopting into their lives it doesn't have to be you know a set of rules there's no black and white because everyone is different and everyone's lives are different and where they live is different um, and so it's really important that people take this journey in their own way and they don't compare but um, they're just continuing to seek different ways of doing things and that's it like I live in the subtropics and the seasons like uh, they're a little bit different here and then we've got friends and clients and listeners who are up in the tropic tropics up the north of australia and they they have different seasons again but 
Mm. I think it's about learning how to connect with the energy of those seasons as well. It's like knowing when to be out there and and more active and then when to be more introspective and, and more, uh, you know, more chilled and and sitting because there has to be time where like yeah like you're you're a perfect example you're like go 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 doing all these things you know I read out your bio and it was like oh my lord but you like you said you don't do that all the time there's these these big periods of introspection and and regeneration and rest it's I hope Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) there has to be lots I'm human so you know there has to be lots and because we live around rhythms of seasons we are really um pretty committed to making sure that our winters are very quiet and very slow apart from that really big party which I'm coming (laughs) it is so cold I'm actually thinking about it I'm sitting here in about five layers of wool and puffer at the moment it's probably not like that where you are but it's Uh, no I'm in um shorts and a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt it sounds like heaven to me but our seasons are very distinctive so we've already moved into distinctive frost season so our potatoes are done and our zucchinis are done and our brassicas are thriving wow (laughs) yeah it's funny but it like people up here expect to get their hands on all that food that grows down there uh because we're just used to seeing it in coles and woolies yeah yeah that's right i know people it's so i i'm always so um disheartened when people can't tell me the seasons of different foods because they're so used to having them just at any time and I always think no the magic of some of these foods is that they're only available for those four weeks before Christmas or for the high heat of summer while that drips down your chin because you've just picked it from the tree and then it's gone I love that it's gone and then that you long for it for the rest of the year and when it comes it's magic again yeah, it does make it so much more special. And that's that's kind of how I grew up when I was a little kid as well. Like we had we had a holiday house in central Victoria and we had this giant mulberry tree, but you'd only mm. get the mulberries for a really short time and then they were done. I think my mum was happy about that though, because mulberry stain was like <laughs> just a disaster. Oh man, it's done. Yeah, yeah. And the oh. birds would eat the mulberries and then they'd poop mulberry all over the clean sheets. But hey, it was only for a few weeks a year. <laughs> but like the, the kids would be so happy. We'd just be out there just like gorging on mulberries, like all day long and your hands would be purple and it was yeah it was magical uh so how do we inject some of that magic into the city folk who it's like okay it's all well and good to try and eat in the seasons but like how are they ever going to how do you work that out if you're in the city yeah well there's lots of different ways i would i would um, say start where you're at with what you've got. So start small and don't feel like what you do needs to be Instagrammable. <laughs> People always say to me, oh, this way of life seems so amazing, but where do you get all those jars? And I say, well, I collected them in op shops over 15 years, you know, and just be be happy to kind of embrace the things that do work and the things that don't work because lots of things don't work. And um, don't eat yourself up over what sometimes feels hypocritical. So there's hypocrisy in sort of everything that we do and we just need to embrace where we're at and um, be willing just to have a go. I would say that building little tiny pockets of ritual into your day and your week and your year, uh, they require active consideration. So really think about what your bits of ritual are. Um, pockets of gentle observation. So take your shoes off and, and stand in a park or on your nature strip or in your backyard or 
in a friend's backyard or wherever you can get your feet on some grass and just listen. Be really still and and listen, kind of observe what you can see and and do that across the seasons because you start to notice really acutely how different things are in different times of the year. But you're outside. That's the most important thing. You're outside. So just someone said not long ago, if you're in doubt, go out. And I thought that is such a quick way to be reminded that outside really does rebalance you often. Yeah, it's so true. And I think we we need to be reminded of that when we're so busy sitting at our desks for eight hours a day is it seems like a bit of a chore to go out. But once you've yeah. been out, you just feel so much better. It's like forcing yourself to go to yoga or dance class or, or, yeah. or whatever. It's like, uh, but then once you've done it, you feel so good. You do. I would say the one thing I would say is don't become so earnest about it that the joy is lost. Make sure that whatever it is that you decide to do, whatever new things you're going to you're going to put together in your life are joyful. Because if they're if they're too hard, you just won't stick with them, and they they won't be enough to keep you going. And so it's got to work for you. Some people don't have the time to do a lot more than maybe walk to work or duck outside at lunchtime, and that's okay. But just do it really intentionally. I don't think um any one person's experience could ever be translated to anybody else's. But we, we try and, you know, some people come at this from a health perspective. Some, some come at it from an environmental sustainability perspective. Others come at it from animal welfare or from low waste or from farming or, you know, it, you can come at it from whatever direction uh, floats your boat really, but just come at it with intention and come at it with an expectation that um, it will bring joy and a sense of virtuosity that you don't get from many other things, like picking your own tomatoes or picking your own apple or whatever it is you're growing. It never gets old. I don't know why. I've been doing it all my life, but there is nothing like the magic of picking your own food and having it on your plate in front of you. You just feel 10 foot tall. Yeah. I think the the, the biggest takeaway I've gotten today, and I, I hope this is the same for the listener, is that just talking to you for this the last sort of 45 minutes it's just put the magic back into it for me Mm -hmm. that's I I hope that's the case I can I can actually get a little bit earnest sometimes so it's really lovely to hear that um, some of that childhood wonder can return to some of those really really simple things that we do every single day and just looking at them slightly differently not as the humdrum every day but those little tiny things that can be quite magical. Yeah, and that's the stuff that that the next generation are going to remember that they've learned from us as well. That's what your kids are going to remember. Yeah, I hope so. I think it's also important to remember that you're not alone, that um, if you're feeling a bit eco-anxious or a little bit daunted and overwhelmed at the state of the world that we're living in, others are in a similar position and um, for some people, the way around that is to put their head in the sand. But for other people, it's to to get doing. And for me, it's definitely to get doing. It's to stop being overwhelmed by it and just put one foot in front of the other with something, whether it be listening to a podcast of other people doing amazing things, whether it be planting a pot out of herbs, whether it be, you know, committing to <clears throat> not buying things in single-use plastic for a year, you know, it's, there's different things for everybody, but um, or whether it be, you know, committing to making your own meals, you know, it could be as simple as that instead of buying prepackaged or, or takeaway or going out. 
you know, all of those little things can all add up to make you feel like you've actually been empowered through action. And I think that's what's really important for people not to be paralysed by the overwhelm of it all, but to be excited by the, the prospect of what could be. Yeah, and becoming more connected but enjoying it as well. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jade, you're, you've got a podcast, a website, an actual farm called Black Barn Farm. You've got the book. Uh, would you like to let people know how they can connect with you and where they can find all these amazing things? Yeah, so if you're nearby to us, um, you can attend lots of workshops that we run across the year and that's just on our website, which is blackbarnfarm.com.au. Um, I have just launched a book that the wonderful Murdoch publishers have put together for me. Um, so that is available for pre-sale at the moment through Booktopia. And then we have a weekly podcast that we put out called Future Steading, which is the same name as the book that I run with the beautiful Katie Payne. And um, that is at futuresteading.com.au. Obviously, we're on Instagram and, and Facebook as well on all of, under all of those names, Blackburn Farm and Future Steading. And your Instagram is really pretty, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were saying it doesn't have to be Instagrammable, but that woman yours is. Well, of course, I only show the pretty bits. There's plenty of non-pretty bits, I can tell you. But, um, you know, no one wants to look at that kind of grit. But, you know, it's it's, all, it's not all what it's cracked up to be. But, yeah, yeah, um, I usually put a pretty photo and a very real set of copy there to, just to keep it a bit more real. Love it, love it, love it. Jade, thank you so much for what you're doing and, and how you're educating people out there in the world. I think we really need what, what you're up to at the moment. So thank you very much for everything you do and thanks for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me here and I will go back and manage my adrenals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I hope you enjoyed listening to Straight Talking Natural Health. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, head over to my website at julesgalloway.com. There's a free quiz on there to see if you are at risk of burnout. I also have an amazing ebook called Heal Your Adrenals, which is a must for any woman with adrenal dysfunction, aka adrenal fatigue. When I'm not podcasting, I'm seeing clients all over the world via Zoom. I love working with fatigue, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, pyrrole disorder, mold illness and complex cases to name just a few. So why not book in and let's work together? All of this and more is available right now over at julesgalloway.com. That's all from me for the time being. I look forward to diving in with you again in the next episode. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.